teaching text this, this Sunday comes from the gospel according to Matthew. And you'll notice a theme uh, over these past few years as we come to Advent, we receive our texts from the lectionary. Um, and I, I never want to leave the gospels. Uh, because it's there where we see and encounter Jesus of Nazareth. We, um, if we are to be with him and become like him and eventually do what he did by the power of the Spirit, then we have to have a vision of who Jesus is and what he is like. And so um, come back to the Gospels time and time again and let them shape our imagination. So our teaching text today is, is the Gospel text from the lectionary in, in Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25, and this is what we read. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after Joseph considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So as our text suggests, uh, today we finally come to um, the opening scene of Jesus' birth narrative. And this is a, a critical moment in the Christmas story, though don't, uh, don't let Advent go quite yet. We are, we, it, Christmas is not here. Um, and this is, this is what Advent has been giving us these past few weeks. It's this, this gift of um, reorienting ourselves to the present, to, to be able to wait and to watch and to witness, to, to, to wait for, as Karen was saying, the, the, the second Advent, to wait for the coming of King Jesus, to watch and prepare and ultimately to witness. That is not necessarily like if you think of witnessing, like street evangelism, but witness to experience and, and see who this man is in our teaching text. Namely, the life of Joseph the son of David, the father of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, I realized this past week that I have not heard one single teaching or given one single teaching on Joseph. So in over a decade of like vocational ministry, I've not heard a single teaching on the life or the character of Joseph. But what we see here is that Matthew holds him up as this person, as an example of obedience. And I tell you, this man, this life, there's something beautiful to be had here. And so it's my prayer that we might allow Joseph's obscure obedience to bear witness to our hearts today on this, the fourth Sunday of Advent. And this past season, I, as I was... Um, 
I don't know, just trying to figure out what is it. I'll just, this is like a confession of a, of a pastor. I got bored reading the Bible. And, um, and I was like, this is just, it feels tedious, and I need something. And I encountered this thing called Visio Divina. Uh, Visio Divina is, if you're familiar with Lectio Divina, it's similar, but it's using your vision. So it's just this form of uh, ancient prayer that is a silent prayer. And you essentially allow um, yourself to enter into a scene or an image with God, like it's you're pursuing curiosity with God and you're, you're asking simple questions like, what draws my attention? I, how would I describe this thing in one or two words? And if I were there, where would I be? And it just allows you to enter this a scene. And what's amazing is that there are, there's just a rich tapestry of images that portray scenes in the scripture. And so I, I, what I want to do this morning as we start is just to offer you this practice. It has been a gift to me in this past season. I think it could be for you as well. Um, because in, it is so simple and yet so remarkable that as you look at a picture of all things, it's like a world can unfold before you and you, all of a sudden, where you are in this moment, in this time, in the condition of your life can be drawn into another world and there, God can like whisper wisdom into your heart in the here and now. And if that sounds kind of squishy and, and like mystical, it's not. It's just using your beautiful imagination that you already possess and asking God to, to like fill it afresh with his spirit. And so here is the, the, the work I want to invite you into. It's this uh, work by a French artist from the, like the early 17th century, like 1634-ish, they think. Um, and I always, I want to say his name, Philippe de Champagnat, but I don't actually know if that's French. It just feels appropriate. So we'll just say this is uh, Mr. Champagne. And, and this is, uh, the, he probably would dislike that. This is the dream of St. Joseph. Um, Matt, would you, would you kill the lights real quick? I think it'll help us, yeah, yeah that one. So uh, con consider those questions again. What, what draws my attention? How would you describe the painting? Just one or two words. And if you were in the image, where would you be? What draws your attention? What, 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 like visually, is there something here? Like I just keep coming back to it. And are there words that you're thinking, well, gosh, those seem like the appropriate words for this. And if you're there, where, where are you? You can, if you would turn the lights back on. And this is, uh, that was uh, 30 seconds with a picture. So you, you could do this for two minutes, five minutes. For, for me, I'm like, I got like a minute of silence. That's where, that's where I'm at. I wish I was like, oh, yeah, I'm 10 minutes in silent prayer, but no, it's like I'm, I'm at a minute. That's, um, that's where I am. Um, so maybe for you it's longer and that's your disposition, but uh, because I'm still new at this practice and because silence feels somewhat uh, exposing for me, it takes me a bit to get out of my way and I have to reckon with this particular image, the fact that Mary and Joseph were likely much younger and they had a darker skin complexion and, you know, some of those things. They, basically, Joseph and I, like we could be cousins, not true in real life. So once I get out of my own way, I can actually start to see the image in front of me. I can, I can enter into it. Once I get past my inner critic, I notice rather than judge the work. And maybe this is the same for you, but 
But here's, here's what came forward for me. Do, do, you, do you see Mary in this picture? Do you see her position? I'm not, I'm not talking about like her posture or anything like that, but her, her position in the image. There, there she is. If you, can't, you can hardly see it, but she's there oriented toward a, a Bible, oriented toward the Word of God. Her hands are crossed like as a, as, a, as a posture of intimacy and reverence, and yet she's in the backdrop. But, but being in the backdrop, it's this, this messenger of God, this angel, who is pointing heavenward and yet also pointing at her as though she is the one to whom, like, this is all, like, it's all about her, except she's not the one who's in the front of the image. And unlike Luke's birth narrative where Mary is front and center, she's having this dramatic encounter with an angel. She's, you know, singing songs and she's going and traveling. Unlike Luke, Champagne is, uh, is partnered with Matthew's account, our teaching text, who thrusts Joseph forward as the key subject of the scene, which begs this simple question, why? Like, why does this guy come forward? There's something that Champagne does here is, is yellow is this color of simplicity. And what you'll also notice right here are some sandals. There's carpenter tools just kind of strewn about. There's lots of little elements. You, could, you can just find this uh, picture, the dream of St. Joseph on Google and, and do, do that work more. But, but why is Joseph pushed forward? Why have a man who does not say a single word in the Gospels put forward as the subject of Jesus's birth narrative here? It doesn't quite make sense, especially in our, like our context because we traffic in language. It's, it's tweets, it's sound bites, it's posts, it's speech and content have really become the measure of a life so that we uh, get questions like this. It'll be like, did you hear what Kanye said? Can you, d did you catch the most recent presidential gaffe? You know, it's like those are the things that catch our attention. Did you see what Elon tweeted? The files, the Twitter, I mean, like these are the things that catch our attention. It's, it's content, it's speech. But it's not Joseph's speech. It's not his, the content that there, it's, it's like the conduct of his heart that Matthew puts forward. It's the conduct of a life lived before God that Matthew puts forward. And miraculously, this unknown teenage boy marked by obedience becomes part of the container wherein Jesus would grow. He would grow in wisdom and stature and favor with man. This unknown and obscure man, Joseph, the son of David, is a part of the story of Jesus moving forward into the world. And it's his obscure obedience that tells the story. And I think in a season like this, obscure obedience may be the very thing that we need in order to wait and to watch and to witness to witness the beauty of God with us, Emmanuel. And just consider, like, again, Joseph says, no, says nothing, but consider the things that are said about him. These are just a few things. Joseph is faithful to the law. In other words, he's Torah observant. One translation puts it forward that he's a righteous man. He's merciful. He didn't want to disgrace Mary. Instead, he would divorce her quietly. He's honorable. 
He's the son of David. He's obedient. And for all intents and purposes, like we know very little about this man, about Joseph, but if we consider the world that Joseph inhabits, that is first century Palestine, like we might get a fuller sense of just how potent this young man's life truly was. You see, Joseph lived in a culture that elevated the role and the place of the family. The role and the place of the family was elevated over and against what sociologists today would call the autonomous individual. We all experience this. We're told to, in a cliche way, like live your best life or something like that. But really, it is this constant call, this like clarion call to go and pursue your own path toward happiness. Like that is the, the, the highest good. Come hell or high water, all else be damned, you get your happiness. There, there's, a, there's a little um, paper that as you walk down this hallway, it's a, a newspaper, I don't, I don't remember the, who, like the publisher of it, but it says, um, courage, true courage is to live your truth. I thought, that's so interesting. Is that truly, that, that is like, that's, that is the spirit of the autonomous individual. But in Joseph's world, the family holds the greatest value. And in turn, that is the place where you root your identity and your well-being. You are seen as a part of that. So it's a, an entire, we have to like flip our framework. And unless you come from a, a culture and a context where honor of your family is a part of your un, way of understanding yourself, this this is a really difficult passage. So there's a, f- a few people in our community who actually get this. You maybe understand this more than us, and we need to learn from you and receive from you because at the center of any family in this time was the father. The center of any family matri- uh, matrix was the father or the patriarch, which is where we get patriarchy from, which simply means father rule. Now, the implications of patriarchy are a whole other thing for a whole other talk, but when we meet Joseph... In our teaching text, he is betrothed, which is not like an old-timey word for engagement. Uh, Betrothal has the significance of marriage. You would have this arrangement. Usually it was when the children were young. And uh, who who here is for arranged marriages? No one. No one. This is like how people got down for a long, long time. this is where, and in Joseph's culture, betrothal is this place that has the significance and the merit of a marriage. It's, it, you actually have to seek a divorce. That's why the text says they, he would seek a divorce quietly. That was the significance of this. So he is betrothed. And this means he's going to prepare a place to receive Mary into his family. And most likely he's doing the physical work of preparing a home on his family's land so that they too could come into that network, that system, that place of social cohesion and build that family. And it's there in the midst of that. And like the, the, the joy that's coming forward and the anticipation of that marriage celebration that some news comes. And we don't know the specifics of the timeline, whether Mary and Joseph were near the end of their betrothal or if it was just at the beginning, we just don't know. But as Matthew puts it, Mary is found to be pregnant and it's too early. Do do you feel the weight of that? I mean, this this is a really familiar passage. 
So we just, we have to do a little extra work to feel the weightiness of this. I imagine that we can feel some elements of this scene, maybe the shock that would come out of, maybe like the scandal, potentially the embarrassment. But what's difficult for most of us is, is the familial shame that would likely come in this story. Because it's not just you and your boo or your beau. Like it's not just some individual thing. What you do in this moment reflects on your family. It's their story as well. See, for Joseph to receive Mary as she is, pregnant by the Holy Spirit apparently, is to embrace like cultural shame and then to dishonor his family. And likewise, then to reject Mary as she is, is to hold cultural shame at bay and the integrity of his family intact. There's incentive for him to do the latter. So on the one side, you have Mary's testimony that she's pregnant because, you know, God did it. And then on the other side, you have the integrity of family honor. This is where we meet Joseph. And what makes it all the more complicated and what Matthew kind of winks at is that Joseph would be justified. He would be justified not only under the, under the Torah, but he would be justified culturally to seek restitution. So the Torah would permit divorce because presumably adultery, how else are you gonna be getting pregnant there? It's not like they're like doing some sort of in vitro thing at that time, no. Like the, the, there in this moment is like essentially allowance from the Torah but then there's cultural restitution. So Joseph could seek the bride price back. This could actually be a lucrative encounter for his family. But the testimony of God through a teenage girl over and against family, honor, and money is what comes through. And just, to, just imagine this for a moment, like if somebody claimed what Mary did then today, what would we say? Do you ever think about this? Like if, if somebody made Mary's claim today, there's this spiritual writer, journalist, Philip Yancey, who commented on this very thing and he quotes an older journalist, uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, great name. And uh, Muggeridge says this, it is a point of fact, extremely improbable under existing conditions that Jesus would have been permitted to be born at all. If that statement, God did it, was made today. Mary's pregnancy in poor circumstances and with the father unknown would have been an obvious case for an abortion. And her talk of having conceived as a result of the intervention of the Holy Ghost would have pointed to the need of psychiatric treatment and made the case for terminating her pregnancy even stronger. Thus, our generation, needing a savior more perhaps than any has ever existed, would be too humane to allow one to be born. I read that this past week and I was like, that may be peripherally related to this teaching, but that is going in. Because I've never, I've never considered the fact that Mary is there in this condition, vulnerable, exposed. And the person to whom God comes is, an, is a teenage boy to be the container wherein Jesus, the savior of God's people would come. Do you realize how ridiculous this story is? We sing songs, we have pageants, 
We, we like remember the Christmas story. This is a stupid story. Like it's, this is ridiculous. A teenage girl, a teenage boy, That is, this is the foundation story of our faith in Jesus, by the way. See, in modern terms, this is the tension of the scene. And, and then we're told in verse 19 that because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. It's like you start to see the composition of Joseph's character even at that place. But... It's as though God is opening up a new vision of faithfulness for Joseph. See, the law is not the end of faithfulness. There's going to be something more that comes. It's going to be the fulfillment of the law. And Matthew goes on in verse 20, check this out. After he had considered this, this is, this is Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, and, and we'll, we'll come back to that, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Let's just stay here for a moment. Just take a look at that first bit. After he had considered this, that little turn of phrase doesn't quite capture the intensity of what, what uh, J Joseph is doing. I think the NRSV kind of captures this, the, the, the tone of this well. It's after, but, but when he had resolved to do this, that it's not just a consideration of like, ah, do I go this way to the testimony of God through Mary or do I, you know, family, honor, and money? You know, he had resolved to do the latter, but to do it in a honorable way in keeping with his character. And it's in that moment, just as he resolved, just as he was to seek what was permitted under the law, not to mention the family, the money, and the honor, God intervened and affirmed Mary's testimony. And pay attention to how the angel does this. And I, th this like leaped off the page. He calls Joseph by name. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. See, to this young man who's kind of caught in the crosshairs of, of familial shame and public disgrace, God speaks identity and confidence over him. Identity, Joseph, son of David, confidence, do not be afraid. T to be a son of David would place Joseph in the line of the king of promise. There is a promise that Yahweh makes to King David that his line would be established forever. That this is the significance, the one whose house and kingdom would endure forever before God and is the one whose throne would be established forever. In other words, this angel, this messenger of Yahweh is saying to Joseph, you stand in the lineage of forever. Like the, the potency of, of trusting who we are cannot be oversold. And I, I feel like each week I'm kind of coming back to this thing, whether it's like welcoming us, welcoming us, we're saying we gather here in the name of Jesus to remember who and whose we are. But there is so much, I guess, content and language calling us to be something or someone different as a place of fulfillment. So this needs to be a place where we are digging this deep well of identity that is rooted in who God says we are, the identity that he speaks over us. 
See, some of us need to hear this simply, that it is not too late. It's not too late to receive from God what he has said that is true of you in Christ. Some of us have wasted years trying to figure out who we are. And I know that, that, that there's even still some of us who are like in that season. I've had, I've had friends who've looked back from their 40s who like, I'm thinking of one friend in specific who's looked back over the decade for his whole 30s and even into his 20s and he was like, I wasted it. And this is the curious thing, he wasted it in ministry, thinking that he was the position he held or he was the amount of people in a room, or he was the influence he had, or the amount of, I don't know, speaking engagements that he was invited to. It's not just that you can waste something away or waste trying to figure out. The, the things that you do are significant, whether it is like engineering electrical work or helping to make sure seeds can produce some sort of, like some sort of generous harvest or whatever it may be. Like the things that we do in this matter, in this world have significance and yet the thing that undergirds them, the lasting thing that cuts through what our peers say of us, the ideology of the age, the religious fervor is to know who we are and therefore how to be in the world. So the potency of trusting who we are cannot be oversold. See, God in Christ has assured anyone who would come to him that they have been crucified and risen, that the old has gone, that the new has come, that they are a, a daughter, a son, a co-heir with Christ. These are the words that God, through the living scripture, speaks over you. The difficulty is to receive them as true, <laughs> to position yourself in them. A, a new creation in Jesus Messiah. Did any of you wake up this morning, you're brushing your teeth, you're like, I got some new creation right here, baby. You're looking in the mirror, like speaking the affirmations of the New Testament over you, like, yeah, this is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, like, holy, like, maybe just try it on. What if, what if you brushing your teeth, maybe it's once a day, twice a day, maybe strive for two. Like, morning and evening, you are now remembering the goodness and the mercy of God that has pursued you and spoken identity over you. You're thinking, Every time you hear the name Joseph, you're like, oh, Joseph, son of David. Yes, I'm like, I'm rooted. I'm in Christ. I'm established, a co-heir. This is the power of identity. There, there's this, um, some people call it a hack. I'm going off notes. D don't worry about it. Um, of if you're trying to quit smoking and some of, someone comes up to you and says, hey, hey, do you want a cigarette? And you go, no, 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 I'm just I'm trying to quit, but no, thank you. You are still positioned as a smoker. But if somebody offers you a cigarette and you say, no thanks, I don't smoke. Sorry, that was loud. You have repositioned yourself into a new identity. So just figure out, well, like, when you know who you are, it gives you movement of how to be in the world. Joseph has just heard you are a son of David. You stand in the line of forever. God speaks identity over Joseph. And then he attends to his anxiety. The acute, and anxiety is the acute concern for the future that often comes to bear on our present in fear. He says, do not be afraid. 
He speaks identity and then he speaks to his anxiety. And he, in that moment, offers a way forward, which is the absence of fear, therefore trust. God unmasks Joseph's fear and speaks directly to his burden. Do not be afraid. In church, this is a word that comes to us when? In the waiting of Advent. And the uncertainty of what's to come, God has simply announced through the life of Joseph, do not be afraid. So what's the alternative? To like try and trust. And in the midst of this, I heard, I heard Matt say, pray this a, a number of weeks ago, and it's just been now like in my, I'm trying to like work it into the architecture of my speech, is I need the spirit to trust God's work in me. Like I need God to trust God. So this, like when you're brushing your teeth, speaking the identity of Christ over you, it is like, and, and I need you. And I need this, I need your help for this to be true. I, because we cannot muster up our identity or secure ourselves, but there is one foundation who is Christ Jesus. Amen? But it doesn't stop here. It gets better. Check out verse 21. She, that is Mary, will, con will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And we don't have time to go into the significance of naming, but Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, just go back and look who Joshua is to the people, who Joseph is in the story of Genesis. The names in this story are doing something, folks. Jesus, the one who saves, the new deliverer, the one I said we don't have time. We're going to stay with it. But that's, that's like if you want some homework, there you go. Go and start doing some like compare and contrast between Jesus and Joshua. This is the one who will save the people from their sins. This is the story. Then that gets kind of dangerous. And the danger is not necessarily our familiarity, though that's part. It's not like we were bored with this story, though some of us may be. It, more so, it's that we have sentimentalized this story. Like, th think of uh, Philippe de Champagnat. Think of, our, think of our painting, The Dream of St. Joseph. And Mary is in the back. Mary gets so much press because it's Mary and baby Jesus. And I'm not, I'm not trying to like profane that or make less of that. It's just here in Matthew's birth narrative of Jesus, he's pushed a different character to the fore. And we take sweet baby Jesus, Jess and the boys are out with grandparents right now and I was FaceTiming and uh, Griffin had like this little Fisher Price uh, nativity set that his grandparents put out and he's like showing me uh, the hay uh, of, of, that's like Jesus. And I said, what's Jesus doing out? It's not Christmas yet, because I'm that guy. And, uh, and he goes, this is, this is baby Jesus. Oh, look how cute he is. And I think we do what my four-year-old does. We put baby Jesus out there. We go, oh, look how cute he is. And this story has been sentimentalized over a sweet baby Jesus. And in that, we, the danger is that we miss the whole point of the story. The whole point is not baby Jesus, because it's still Advent. Joseph is telling us part of the story here. 
See, it is Jesus with Joseph as his father who now stands in the line of David. It is Jesus with Joseph and his father and Mary as his mother, the seed of the woman. This is the potency of this passage. In one moment, in one verse, the hope of God's people comes rushing on to the scene. She will give birth to a son. And just go here with for a moment. We are gonna chase this one. If you flip over to page three of your Bibles or just look up on the screen, you'll see that what is going on here is that embedded in that line in Matthew is that there is a hope bursting forth in Jesus that speaks to the hope that broke in in the face of sin and rebellion. In Genesis 3, 14 and 15, we read this, and I appreciate how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in uh, the message. He says, God told the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed, cursed beyond all cattle and wild animals, cursed to slink on your belly and eat the dirt all your life. And I am declaring war between you and the seed of the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will wound your head, you will wound his heel. This passage is about the snake crusher. Uh, theologians will call this the proto-euangelion. This is, in some sense, that's the first announcement of good news, that in the face of sin and rebellion, there is one who will come from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And when we hear that she will give birth, like if you have ears to hear, church, come on. It is coming down the pike like it is Jesus. He is the one who is come to crush the serpent's head. This is Jesus. Let me say this again. It is Jesus who has come to crush the head of the serpent. And where has he come? He's come in the obscure obedience of a no-name man who doesn't even speak a word in the Gospels. This is where God shows up. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew knits together humanity's past and future hope together through the life of Joseph and Mary. Through this young man dreaming dreams about God's cosmic work to heal his creation, and what's so curious to me and where I want to draw our attention as we close is that while, while people praise public accomplishments, while we seek those, uh, but maybe, maybe you don't, but I know that I have this thing I wrestle with, which is called ambition. <laughs> like nobody, I'm learning that people who want to be a pastor either have like some Messiah complex thing going on or they're perfectionists or generally a little bit of both, which means narcissism. So you have to like kill that thing dead by the power of the spirit because there's something that wants to be seen. But where people praise public accomplishments, God celebrates private devotion. Joseph never says a word we don't know about his family beyond being a son of David, and we see nothing of him in the Gospels, except for Jesus getting dissed for being a bastard. That's what we see. But in verse 24, we read this. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Don't miss this. Joseph's response in his obscurity is obedience. He did what the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. 
there's this line that I think brings this together from this pastor and author, John Tyson, on his, in his work on a secret place. And it's just, um, I want to share it with you. He says this, there is a relentless pressure to live public lives. Do you feel that? Like, do you ever feel the need to like post what you're doing on the internet? <laughs> and maybe you don't, but do you see your, I don't know, younger coworkers? Or, I mean, I was, I, I took a flight back from Michigan and as I was waiting in the airport, I just was watching. Do you like see people walking like this through the terminal? And it's there, you can do something next time you're in an airport. Just when someone's walking towards you and they're on your phone, don't say anything. Just let them almost collide with you. Maybe it's not the kindest thing to do. But my, my point is this, like, there is, and I'll, I'll go on with Tyson's quote, there is this intense pressure, the public relentless pressure to live public lives, lives that are seen, lives of high visibility, lives that are applauded. And we all know the psychology of likes on social media, but it can be a real challenge to break free from them. Public praise versus private affirmation. This is one of the keys to the kingdom. He goes on to say further that the public place may make us feel significant, but it is rarely where we are formed. In fact, the public place reveals our formation. Just think of all of the scandals that come out, the, the private lives that are exposed. And maybe right now, like the, the Spirit is just asking you, like, what? What is, what is your private life? Like, what is the secret sin? What is the thing, the, the, the root of bitterness that you've allowed there? Like, maybe the Spirit of God is just asking, can I pull that? Yes, it will hurt. Can I pull that? Will you let me? The reason so many people have public failures is because they have private deficits. They haven't built secret reserves to handle the weight of public life. They collapse under the weight of influence because they don't have a foundation of character to sustain it. When we meet Joseph, we meet a man who is righteous, who is observant of the Torah. He follows the law. He has kind of this character, and yet God gives him a new vision of faithfulness. But notice, God gives a new vision of faithfulness, Jesus, who will save the people from their sins, to an already faithful man. Before God's voice breaks in and transforms what probably felt like betrayal into a, into a moment of loyalty to God, we're told that Joseph is a man regarded as righteous, faithful to the Torah, and I don't think that's an accident. I don't think it's an accident that when the high king of heaven manifests his glory in the smallest of places that it is with the willingness of Mary in the obscure obedience of Joseph. I submit, like, I want our church to be, like, eight times the size, <laughs> partially because that would give some, uh, you know, uh, fiscal assurances and comfort and things like that, and I just, be, I'm being honest, um, but also because platform and influence and the curiosity that came to my mind this week is, like, what if this is the type of place we're obscure. We have weird kind of mashed up theology, people from different traditions, people who have been hurt by the church and are like trying to deal with that, people who've grown up in church. Like we have all sorts of different stories in this community. It is obscure. 
And you can stay obscure. You, you can be obscure but not obedient. You can be obscure and be hidden. I think the invitation in front of us, church, is to see our obscurity as a place for obedience to actually do something beautiful, to be the type of container that releases salvation into the world. Th that word salvation in the Greek, it's the same word for healing. Like what if your obscure and hidden life before God is for the healing of others? because you have this capacity to listen and not have to correct their theology or their condition or their sexuality or their gender identity. You're just there as somebody who's loving them because you've been loved by God in Christ. Like what if this place of obscure obedience is the thing? There's this film by Terrence Malick called The Hidden Life. And it tells the story of uh, Franz Jägerstarter. I might have said that wrong. Uh, but he's an Austrian farmer who's committed to resisting the Nazis. And this man lived a simple life. And this man, in a place of obscurity, he stands up to the moral decay of his culture. He, he will not, play, he'll, he'll, I, I, I will, he, he commits to being a chaplain or working in the medical corps, but he will not give his allegiance to Hitler. And he's beheaded. And there's this line, a judge says this to him. He warns Franz, do you imagine that anything you do will change the course of this war? That anyone outside this court will ever hear of you? No one will be changed. The world will go on as before. You'll vanish. That is the lie that speaks against our obedience. It doesn't even matter. There is a monument to this man. There's a monument to this man's life. He, he's, um, he stands as a witness even today to you and to me who like Joseph lived a private life of devotion before the Lord. There is beauty in a life of obscure obedience. No one may know it. Why does Jesus say when you're to pray to go into the closet? Because there's people who perform their religiosity in front of others. And that could be religiosity in the name of Jesus or religiosity in the name of ideology. Your tweet doesn't make you righteous. <laughs> not saying that all of you are tweeting and hoping for righteousness. I'm just saying our public performance does not establish our life before God. But our private devotion, it does. See, what this text, what Franz's life, what Joseph's life brings before us is this question, will we hide and claim our obscurity as faithfulness or will obscurity become the place of faithfulness? And I pray it is the latter. See, Joseph's life invites us to embrace moments of obscure love. It's like playing with your kids when you have nothing left in the tank. It's partnering with the coworker or classmate or peer who annoys everyone and treating them like somebody who's worthy of love. And if you're like, gosh, I, I don't think of anybody, you might be that person. I know that I can be that person on our staff. See, it's this listening rather than speaking it, and many more things that aren't listed here.
See, Joseph knew who he was. He was affirmed by God, the son of David. And when he heard the voice of God, he chose obedience because God gave him this place of security. He said, do not be afraid. 